Greetings, this is Kurt. Here we continue with the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. We'd like to hear from you. Simply send comments, compliments, and questions to our email. If you care to be a benefactor and help in keeping these complex productions coming, it's very easy. Just buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 20. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of... A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter 24 They're coming. Lazar's eyes were unfocused, his attention centered on images from his wardmate circling high above the forest. Horses and men bristling with halberds, blades, arrows, and new armor trailed a cloud of yellow dust as they approached the campsite from the southwest. At least two score mounted fighters carrying substantial weaponry. Can you see anyone that matches our description of Calron? Gawan was not even sure if their collective memory of the Dark Mage's appearance in the shadowed vaults of the Lost City was even remotely accurate. No, but I can't be sure. Being near second sunset, the shadows of the forest lining the thin ribbon of road shrouded the contingency of mounted men, making it difficult to be accurate. Thern could have flown low and close in order to see clearly, but Lazar didn't want his hawk to make an inviting target for any bored archer or hunter in the group. They'll hit camp just after second sunset. Word was passed quickly to the others. The afternoon had remained uneventful while they kept watch over the robbers' campsite. With Lazar and Thern scouting the road from the sky, there was no need for anyone to remain close to the campsite. Everyone had taken up hiding places deep in the forest and settled into quiet anticipation. Warding off boredom kept most occupied, some sharing food, quiet games, or chores to help abide the time. Lazar's news heightened expectancy, but there was nothing to do yet. An earlier decision had been made to remain unseen and quiet until well after dark when it would be safer to stalk and spy on the robbers. Upon arrival, the 41 men quickly made camp, building three fires and throwing on spits of freshly killed and skinned deer to cook. Horses were watered and fed by some, while others unrolled blankets and sat as the meat sizzled and spattered over the fires. Harsh laughter and eyeballed conversation pushed back the stillness of the forest as twilight darkened, bringing with it a scattering of the first stars twinkling in the distance. 
fading day's heat. Once most of the men were settled, Gaywan urged Blake to move in close in hopes of picking up conversation and perhaps pinpoint Calron's location if he was among them. With the silence of a hunter, the mudcat made his way to the camp and crept up behind a log on the edge of the firelight near a pair of men sitting together. They jostled each other and exchanged words with an undercurrent of excitement, their conversation a study in the extremes of the erudite and the unrefined. One man apparently an educated swordsman, the other a back-alley footman. Hard hope town. Less than a day's steady ride. He smelled deeply of the roasting meat. Mm. Can't wait for some of that belly timber. Uh, it's been a long day in the saddle. <laughs> hey, look at that creep swapping crowds flatching. He'll be carked. Sarnath was rather carked about his men not being here. Aye, right. that's what being said. He's about pissed himself dry over some sort of powders that are nicked too. Powders? The other one shrugged. Don't ask me, but I think he's a man scampered off. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. He pointed again where a cohort was placing the stolen dagger in such a way that the owner would prick himself. At this point, other men started roaming closer to these two, endangering Blake's safety. Memory of the trapper who had accosted them in Hopetown was still vivid in Wardmate and Master's minds. Gaywan called for the Mudcat to return as quickly and carefully as possible. Thern, however, was able to remain on his perch in the canopy of tree branches over the camp and keep an eye on the robbers' activities. Once the cooked meat was distributed and the men settled down, Gaywan and Chania decided it was time to send a couple of their people to eavesdrop. Clough and Lazar volunteered, both comfortable with traversing via tree branches. They quietly ascended separate trees and headed for different areas of the campsite. Finding concealed places near to the fires, they settled in for a long wait. The waning moon climbed high through the sparkling night sky. After the men had eaten their fill, their rowdiness slowed by the food in their bellies, Sarneth stood before the central campfire and called for their attention. Had enough to eat? <laughs> Very good. No need to go hungry before the last leg of our trip tomorrow. Where are the older men you said we were meeting there? Wanting to know the same thing, but frustrated with the lack of any information as to their whereabouts, as well as the fire powders Calron had bid him keep, Sarneth put forth his best authoritative expression. <clears throat> they went onward to Hopetown to make final preparations for our planner. He paused for a moment, ostensibly to scratch his beard, waiting for any challenge to this statement. There was none, of course, these men concerned only about their bellies and purses. And with the earnest payment of ten silver pieces to each man, and a promise of equal share on top of whatever plunder was seized individually, they had little interest in questioning his word. This was to be expected in case of uh, various small problems for our planners. Not for our attack. You will have another group from the guild joining us there. And half a score of mountain men. He didn't say, not wanting to panic them. Where do we settle splits and women? They'll divvy the spoils at the meeting point on the south wall of town. As for the women... Sarneth spread his arms with a lascivious grin. Where you find them, you rip them! Many of the men jerked their fists in crude demonstration of their erotic energies. When the tumult died down, a lazy voice wavered up. What was the question? Pushing and shoving followed the sleepy robbers' cohorts jostling him. Sarneth rested hands on his hips. Any more smart questions? Except I expected him, you crud to be smart. 
Safely hidden in his perch above, Clough grinned quietly at Sarnath's remark, then wondered how such a rudely organized legion could be effectively galvanized for an attack on Hopetown. Their goals were the same, but their methods were not. Meanwhile, there were no other questions, smart, stupid, rude, or otherwise, and Sarnath bent over to grab the jug of tainted ale, silently commending himself for taking it along instead of leaving it behind to disappear with the missing firepowders. He held the jug high for everyone at all three campfires to see. As you know, the mage is running this assault and he left us a luck potion. Then uncorked it and made a show of taking a hefty swig. From his vantage point, Clough saw him barely wet his lips, his swallowing mimicked. Sarnath handed the jug around, then watched as his men partook. Some took long drafts until their friends shoved him. Others eyed the stuff suspiciously, but took a good taste anyway for fear of appearing cowardly. Clough observed this with interest, not unused to the idea of luck potions. Usually a flavored wine with a sting of spice, but possessing no real magical properties. And he grew progressively more disturbed at the effect this stuff was having on the men. They leered hungrily at each other, then angrily at their leader, whose satisfied smile increased with each additional man coming under its effect. Calron wasn't exaggerating. The stuff is indeed potent. As the jug made its way to the last of them, he started chanting and beating his fists in the air in tempo with his words. Soon each and every man was imitating his every move. Their chant rose like the wind, the mighty assortment of robbers and fighters, never before brought under one banner, moving and sounding as one for the first time since they arrived. Hidden in the tree branches above, Clough and Lazar felt a chill of dread as they watched the fervor and anger building to a riotous level beneath them. What had been nothing more than a collection of men sharing food and talk was now becoming a battle host of alarming solidity. Soon they were shouting, weapons and fists raised in unity, and allegiance being sworn to the leader and his cause. Every man's eyes burned with hatred that had not been there before. Sarnath lifted hands to silence them, feeling every eye on him as he recalled Calron's specific instructions on how to handle those under the potion's effect. And yet, he couldn't help the sensation of power he felt with having the minds of his men enslaved to him and him alone. Not even Calron could intervene once the potion had taken effect and the men were bound to their task. Suddenly, the idea of him becoming Hopetown's new marshal didn't seem so impossible and in fact appeared within grasp. If the assault was successful, listen to me! Revenge is ours! And for those of us banished by Marshal Garnett, we are finally vindicated! His hand is on a stake! His house is burning! His town is ashes! His women are ripped beneath us! Sarnath's next move, listening for his next word, every pair of eyes wide, unblinking. For what seemed an endless moment, Sarnath simply stood and met each man's gaze, relishing in the ecstasy of domination and command over so many minds. Like an opiate, controlling the actions of others lent a rapture unlike any other. 
but he had to let go now or weaken the after effect of the potion. Held too long, the men would fall dumb and silent, imitating his every action like puppets with invisible strings attached to him. <clears throat> he dropped his fists and looked away, breaking visual contact with all. Like a passing scent on the wind, the fury was dispelled. After a few moments, the men were themselves again, lowering their fists and weapons, sitting back onto their blankets and grumbling about this or that. Sarnath spoke as before, as if the fevered interval had never occurred. Bear as many of the women as possible. We'll want them for our pleasure! <laughs> Frustration. That's all I'd need is a bunch of hungover hottie peaks falling off their horses in the morning. Remember, we're leaving before dawn, and we'll make only two stops to rest the animals. Sober tonight, men, and drink up in Hopetown tomorrow night! That's more like the fighters I lead. With insults and laughter scattering around the three campfires, Sarnath ended his talk and returned to his seat where three men, his new afterlings, waited. He hid his bafflement over the unknown fate of his missing men and firepowers, knowing there was nothing he could do about it now. Clough and Lazar returned to their own makeshift camp and quickly related everything they had seen and heard. Gawan mulled over their description of the so-called luck potion and its effects, disgruntled that Calron was clearly not present. Giberon and Durwan discussed the mechanics of the planned assault. We need more information. When the attack begins, from what quarter, how many others? Agreed. Chania, Bryn, do either of you practice a charming spell? We both do. We had the same teacher. Chania's better at it. He raised a questioning eyebrow. Hmm. I know this is a dangerous chore for either of you, but may I suggest we extract one of those men and bring him here for questioning. A few moments later, with Lazar nearby... Chania hid behind a tree and surveyed the nearest campfire while she tried to decide on the best way to separate one man from the rest. Though several had placed their bedrolls distant from the others who were clustered near the fire, they were still in easy view of anyone who would look their direction, and from Clough and Lazar's description of the group's less than honorable manner, she knew if she was seen, she would meet a fate worse than death. The mere thought of being raped by so many horrible men made her shiver uncontrollably, and she smothered the nasty image by centering herself on the immediate task. As she stood there, debating with herself over what exactly she might do, several of the men got up and wandered deeper into the forest to relieve themselves. Realizing this was the best opportunity, Chania circled around with Lazar in her wake, hoping one might be bashful enough to seek solitude. Noticing one man who kept an oblique eye on his comrades while heading further and further down the gentle incline into the woods, she darted ahead of him and waited behind a large tree for her quarry to pass by. When he did, she caught his attention with a whisper. Hello. The fellow stopped and jerked his head around to see a pretty woman pointing three fingers directly at him. Ramchesi! The spell took effect almost instantly, his mouth freezing in a gape, his body still, eyes glazed over. She leaned close to him. Follow me. He did so, his face totally devoid of expression. With sword drawn, Lazar followed, checking behind to be sure no one else had come close enough to have possibly seen them. 
Rejoining the others, Chania asked Gaewan's assistance in questioning her charmed captive, instructing the others to stay back for fear of weakening the spell's effect with too many voices. No light was conjured or kindled, the group remaining effectively invisible to the man, indistinct shapes blending against the moonlit forest. What is your name? The man's eyes closed slowly, and he slumped shoulders as if fatigued. Ruga. Who is your leader? Sarneth. When does the assault on Hopetown start? Tomorrow, not long before first sunset. Where will it start? We enter from the western quarter. How can a mere two score of haphazardly organized fighters expect to take over the entire settlement? Sarneth mentioned they would be joined by another group. Oh, I'd forgotten that part. The enchanter crossed arms and fumed with frustration. Something doesn't seem right about this whole affair. Wouldn't Calron be here if they were as integral to his plan as he had made them believe? How many in the other group? I don't know. Gaewan stepped back and stared off into the night, shaking his head with suspicion, then glanced back at Chania, who watched him in earnest. Even if they were still armed with the fire powders, twice forty men would have a difficult task overwhelming Hopetown entirely. Then, remembering how Calron had taken control of him and his friends in the Lost City, he realized the luck potion's true purpose. An hypnotic elixir, a geish to force the men to fight. In the mage histories, he had read of similar potions used by the warlords of ancient times, fluids that were forced down the throats of conscripted fighters and convicted violent criminals that bound them together, fighting side by side without question. Demons abound here. What are you saying? Warlord poison. An outlawed elixir. These men have been bound together by that potion and will fight wherever and whenever they're told. And, knowing Calron, their attack on Hopetown is meant only as a distraction. If you're right, that's one hell of a distraction. Quickly now. Ask any more questions of Ruka and be done. He'll be missed soon. From where he stood off a few paces, Gaewan cast his gaze on the charmed man. Is there more than one mage to be involved in the assault? Ruga's head lolled slightly as he seemed to puzzle over this question. No. Squinting dubiously at this, Gaewan nodded at Chania. She signaled Lazar close, then turned to her captive. You will now go back to camp and go to sleep in your blanket. She remembered what had sent him into the woods in the first place. Relieve yourself near the camp. If you are asked where you have been, you will say you are sleepy and got lost. You will forget everything that has happened here after you go to sleep. She tapped his forehead, making him open his eyes, then pointed at Lazar. This man will lead you part of the way back. Do you understand? Yes. Then go. With an uncertain nod to Chania, Lazar led Ruga away, Cluck following silently behind them as a precaution. The others gathered close again and discussed their options. If we left now, we could warn Hopetown before they get there. At the severe cost of breaking our horses. And we would get there only just ahead of them. There wouldn't be time for the town to prepare. No, our best opportunity is now. Tonight, we must stop them here. Well, that won't be easy. Our eleven against their forty? Mm, even with a surprise attack, it will be difficult. King Cresden's five hundred defeated over two thousand Grims on the beaches of the young continent. Durwan shook his head. But two hundred of ours were mounted and attacked from the flanks. The Grims had never even conceived of troops on horseback. Robbers and thieves are more cowardly than courageous. Swords for hire are always the first to run when faced with a strong show of force. There is the matter of the warlord poison. 
These men are now under the direct control of Sarnith. If he tells them to hop, run, kill, they will do just that. And once he identifies a specific target, he will focus their attention on it and tell them to destroy it, or us, as the case will be. Therefore, any normal assessment cannot apply. Magic is being used. Is there any way of antidoting the poison? Not really, but with Calron not here, my guess is the potion is of a lesser effect than the pure warlord stuff. The true poison requires many derivatives of plants not found in this region, and to make enough for forty men. He gestured his hands in the unspoken logic of his assumption. And, if I'm correct, the potion has a weakness. It suppresses a man's freedom of will, but not his fears. Come at them with an overwhelming force. Inflict a little pain. That won't be any problem. Thasgar sharpened his dagger on a rock next to where Gon was sitting. And the potion's effect becomes impotent. We're far from being an overwhelming force. So what's the point of this discussion? We should work on strategies for delaying them, perhaps. Steal their horses and they won't be going anywhere. Not a bad idea. But we're talking about 40 animals, a narrow road, and a dense forest, plus the inevitability of their night watch noticing horses being moved. Once we draw attention to ourselves, and you're right, as a first impression, we aren't a real threat to them. They would defeat us, probably kill us. Could not your elf horse tell them to run? <laughs> he could, but not all of them would listen. We're talking about 40 horses trained to respond to their riders. It's better than doing nothing. And has only a mild chance of being effective. Which brings us back to the problem. What are we going to do? Stop them. Durwan crossed arms and glared with skepticism at Gaewan. Tell me how. A combination of everything we've discussed. Go on. The warrior was uncomfortable with listening to battle strategy from an enchanter as opposed to a seasoned fighter. Aware that if he convinced Durwan, he convinced them all, Gaewan concentrated his attention on him. We can break them up, dispel the effects of the potion, and stop them from ever getting to Hopetown. I propose the following. To start, untether their horses, upon which I will invoke a scare that will scatter them for the short duration. This will send a few men after them. At the same time, I will create a distraction in the opposite direction of the horses, easily done with a few lights. More men will go that way. Remember, they will do anything Sarnath says, and once out of earshot, he can't tell them to do something else. All right, you thin them out a little, but neither of those tricks will keep the men busy for long. Then what? I will make myself obvious, thereby bringing an attack in my direction. I will release an enchantment that will flatten a good handful. At the same time, the rest of you, holding angled positions on each flank, will loose a few arrows, distracting them further. Sounds like a random toss of the dice, guessing how many will go either direction. Hmm. But we will have the advantage of surprise. Durwan appeared interested. Always good for evening the odds. Gaewan looked to the princess. Bryn, Chania, do either of you know a spell for illusion? I do, but it's a strain to hold for very long. I know. He remembered the headaches he suffered in the past from maintaining an illusion for too long. We need something big, something to scare the boots off of them. Can you mock up a dragon of some sort? I have seen only one, an Azum dragon. Fuss, that's all I can do. Hmm. That one is more likely to be seen at sea, but I wouldn't think anyone would figure that out right away. And what happens if her illusion is disbelieved? Have you ever seen a dragon? Well, no, I haven't. I have. The mere appearance of one would be so shocking that, at the very least, it should slow them down, make them wonder. I'm not used to this. This plan of using magic. 
where I learned to fight, only cold steel works against an enemy. Not some goddamn ghost. Durwan, we don't have enough cold steel among us to deal with these men. Are you saying you'd rather try to slay all 41 of them? No, but... The intent here is to scare them into breaking up, bewilder them, at the very least delay them to the point that Sarneth gives up trying to get to Hopetown, if he even tries, which he won't. How do you know he won't? Because once we have them scattered, I intend to snare the man and force him to surrender. as he dropped himself onto his blanket. Well, if you weren't so shy about your weed, you wouldn't have to go so far just to drop your side. Getting no response, he reached over and grabbed Ruga's arm. Hey, you all right? I must sleep. Let him go to sleep, Karst. The boy is half dead. Didn't you see his eyeballs? Now get some rest yourself. We've got to ride at Sparrowfart. Reluctantly, Karst let go of his friend and fell back on his blanket, muttering curses. Rat, mother. Concealed in the darkness of the forest, Clough and Lazar saw that Ruga had gone to sleep. Thus, there was no danger of their discovery by his lengthy absence. With the natural stealth of elves, they headed back to rejoin their friends, leaving behind the rising snores of Calron's makeshift legion. Lazar's touch on his shoulder startled Gawon slightly. He had never been able to discern when Clough would sneak up on him either, and he listened to the elven warrior's whisper. We finished untying their horses. Everyone's in position. You have the initiative. Nodding with understanding, he sent Lazar back to Chania's side on the left flank. They had split up again with Ablui, Gibran, Clough, Durwan on one side and the rest on the other. Gawan waited until he knew through his wardmate, waiting with Flaina, that Lazar was also in position. It was shortly before midnight and the air was cool. The robbers' camp slumbered undisturbed, save for a couple of men hovering near the central fire, posting a reluctant watch. The sleepy scene before Gawan was deceptively peaceful and benign, but he would soon transform it. Deciding this was the moment, he moved from his hiding place behind a tree. To his rear were the robbers' horses. Before him lay the three campfires, the nearest sleeping man a mere thirty paces away. Confident he would not be seen, the two men maintaining watch were night blind from facing their campfire. The enchanter raised his hands and made a motion of molding and pressing a ball, then brought his cupped hands to his lips and inhaled. Then... While holding his breath, he separated his hands, each cradling an invisible ball. Winding up, he threw them toward the opposite side of the camp. A faint sound of wind against flames passed through the overhanging branches. After a moment, he blew as hard as he could toward the far side of the camp. Instantly, two spheres of light appeared, shining and moving among the dark bowls, looking very much like swinging lanterns. He molded and tossed again. Now there were three. Four. One of the watchmen took casual notice and nudged his mate. With mild curiosity, they watched the supposed lanterns approach, but did little else. Gawan fumed with exasperation at seeing the clever start to his assault plan going, for all practical purposes, entirely unnoticed. On the left flank of the camp, their bows ready, Flaina whispered into Thasgar's ear. No wonder they needed a potion to pull them together. These fellows do only what the job says. They watch. The archer grinned mischievously, his mustache bristling. Shall we persuade them to make a little noise? <laughs> Exchanging nods with her, Lazar, and Gunn. 
He let his arrow fly. Two shots landed in a tree and one in a hedgehog. spun about and cast his hands forward with a spell, invoking a wave of fright over the untethered horses. Unlike they panicked obligingly, snorting and hunting with the whites of their eyes shining out of the darkness like demon steeds. Amidst all the sudden noise, the dam of slumber broke. Seeing the lights, some seeing their watchman with a feathered shaft sticking out of his leg, others watching their horses galloping away in different directions. One of the watchmen pointed at the swinging lights. Look, it's the marshal's men! Sarnath was on his feet quickly and glancing every which way, making as accurate an assessment as he could, then jumped on top of his tree stump and waved his new sword. Two arms! Two arms! The air became alive with more arrows, some finding deliberate targets in legs and arms, others landing in trees or plunging into the ground next to bewildered men staggering about. You! You! Go get our steed! Get the horse! You men! Get your boat! Line up here! You men! Get your boats and line up facing the lanterns! A general rise of confused men filled the camp as more than a score of robbers sought bows and swords, while others simply stood and stared with bewilderment. Gaewan found himself between the last of the stampeding horses and at least eight men bearing flaming brands running to catch them. Shifting to a spot just in front of a tree to prevent one of them bumping into him, he quickly clasped his cloak and shivered to he had not done this earlier due to the scare spell requiring visibility between caster and subject. After a few moments, when the men had passed him by, he became visible again and surveyed the scene. Before him was the skirmish line of twenty-odd men, their backs to him, with more lining up, a convenient arrangement for maximum effect. In one fluid motion, the enchanter quickly formed a power sphere, the larger ball of light swirling into existence between his bones, then flung the spinning, coruscating green and golden fire into the line of men, an iridescent streak flashing from his hands. Contact with the center of the room, the power sphere scattered incandescent strands in all directions. Each man, touched by the shivering streaks of power, buckled as if struck by lightning, then collapsed to the ground. Dazed, but not otherwise affected, for he had been missed, Sarnath blinked his flash-blinded eyes at his fallen soldiers for hire and counted twelve down. Then he saw the cloaked and hooded man standing just within the firelight, thirty paces away. At first he thought it was the mage come to destroy him for some unknown reason. Calron? Not this time, Sarnath. Gawan removed his hood and met the leader's perplexed gaze. But if you don't surrender, you'll wish I were. Gawan? The one and only. To the enchanter's immediate consternation, Sarnath did not weaken further, but turned his back to the approaching lights, stood firm, and gestured to his remaining men, who had stopped to observe the brief interchange. Oh, a glory of gold! Take him! Hold him! Five armed fighters descended upon him. Gaewan turned palms to the ground and channeled a lesser enchantment. A fire roared skyward between him and his attackers, the intensity of its sudden heat forcing them back. More arrows flying into the camp from both flanks forced those men still with Sarnath to drop to the ground. Angry bear approached them. turn back and face their leader's wrath. Sarnath, however, was not as easily frightened. Here! Come here! Round me! Round me! He rallied hey, his sir, remaining sir, men in a sir. circle around him with shields protecting them and directed their aim in three directions. You release that one! You release that one! Both flanks and the wall of fire. Magic fire can't stop your arrows, man! Let fly! Having no defense against flying weapons while maintaining another enchantment, Gawan clasped his cloak and flattened himself on the ground. 
Several arrows flew through the space where he had been standing. Then he started crawling toward a different area. At Sarnath's command, the robber ceased losing arrows and blinked in wonder at where the enchanter and his flames had been standing just a moment before. Through Glink, Gawan heard Thasgar also give the command to cease. They were worried about hitting him by accident now that he was unseen. Damn mage! Sarnath scowled in all directions from his crouched position. This is all trickery! His arrows are real enough! Fools! Don't turn white lover against a mage and a handful of archers! He turned his head to either flank, approximating sounds and directions, still unable to discern much beyond the immediate campsite, then pointed toward one flank. We're too exposed here! Stay low and head that way! chance for his companion, Shas, to find targets now, the robbers moving in and out of shadow and among the protection of the trees. And he couldn't reach Sarnath without endangering himself. Worse, the robbers were headed for the weaker of the attacking flanks. On the other side, Alui, in his werebear altar form, could easily protect his companions. The weaker flank had only Bryn's illusion to keep the robbers at bay. Still invisible, he stood and quickly thought over possible alternatives, while through Glink, he heard Chania. Now, Bryn. Remchetka. Huh? An Asm dragon, large and fierce, materialized among the trees, its giant gray eyes rolling down and focusing on the robbers. As his men stared in horror at the serpent opening its massive mouth, Sarnath hesitated for a moment, then remembered what and who he was fighting. Keep moving! Keep moving! It's not real! Honeybee! I'm running! One scrambled to his feet and pelted back toward the camp, dodging those of his fellows on the ground with arrows sticking out of their arms or legs. A large shadow lurking out of the forest stopped him cold, and he gaped at the grizzly bear standing on hind legs, coming for him. It's fake! Sarnath was immediately astounded as the bear lunged for its prey, <coughs> downing the man in one single swipe of its massive paw. He stared soundlessly, suddenly unsure of himself. At the same time, the dragon's immense blue form flickered and vanished. Bryn, exhausted from creating and maintaining such a large illusion, leaving herself and her companions vulnerable and partially visible. Hey, no flirt! It was fake! Look! It's women! Witches! Kill them! Rising to their feet and unsheathing swords, the eleven robbers shouted and charged after the retreating flank. Swearing to himself and clenching fists in helpless frustration, Kaywon watched as Thasgar, Gaim, Lazar, and Flano with Glink tried to back away and hide in the shadows. The reversed situation would be impossible to salvage now. Sarnath's men hell-bent on getting revenge for their wounded mates. Ablui, Clough, Giberon, Durwan, and Lazar were too far away to render aid or distraction, and the trees were too many to make another power sphere effective. He might knock down one or two, but not enough to make a difference. Suddenly, he remembered and was inspired. Blessings of the Master, I need you now. He pointed a hand toward the area between him and Sarnath's men. Goldar! into the forest, where it struck the ground, a terrific wall heavenward as trees buckled and snapped. Dissipating with a rumble of deep breath, the flames gave way to a magnificent bronze dragon appearing behind the charging fighters. Blitheron, glowing eyes wide with surprise, took in the scene before him, decided the shouting men irritated him, and opened his jaws to roar them into silence. not flattened by the force of his voice fell to their knees with hands pressing against their ears. Overwhelmed by the serpent's genuine presence, its size, its warmth, its breath, the trees around it snapped in two. Sarnath stopped and stood helpless before the creature, glanced around at his fallen men, then dropped his sword and prostrated himself in a silent prayer for mercy. Gawan 
came up beside the dragon as one of its large golden eyes located him, its massive horned head turning toward him, its mental voice rumbling out of the ethers. I presume you had a need for my company? <sighs> Blessings upon thee, Blitheron. Yes. We were attempting to prevent these men from carrying out a planned assault on innocent people and, in the process, inadvertently entangled ourselves. Around them, the forest had fallen silent with only the sound of Blitheron's breath and the occasional clatter of a weapon being kicked aside as Gaewan's companions disarmed the robbers. After a few moments of collecting his thoughts, he walked around the dragon's great paw and nudged Sarnath with his boot. Get up, man! Lifting his head slowly and staring with trepidation at the bronze scales and the fanning mane above him gleaming in the light of the dwindling campfires, Sarnath stood shakily and blinked obediently at the enchanter. What is... what is your command, mage of dragons? Gawan cared not to correct his assumption. Disperse your men. Mend their wounds. Send them home. There will be no attack on Hopetown. For a moment, he saw a flicker of defiance in the man's eyes before he nodded and tugged absently at his beard. Tis not with me you should be angry, Sarneth. Calron is using you. Using me? But all the silver he spent on hiring these men, purchasing weapons... Then he remembered Calron's last words with him before departing for Hopetown two nights earlier. I said I would start, not finish the deed. I'm an impatient man, Sonneth. I will not dawdle about waiting for support when I can initiate matters myself. Amid a suppressed rage, he managed to force out the question. Why? He's after bigger game. Bigger than taking over a town? Have you ever seen a fisherman going after a big one? Hmm. Heard stories, I suppose. They use little fish to get bigger fish. Nodding, Sarneth seemed to understand. So what's the big fish here? You tell me. The enchanter shifted stance and crossed his arms. You're the one who was robbing travelers in my name. Sarnath had the grace to lower his eyes. Uh, I don't know. The windsucker said he had help from the guild. Guild? Thieves' guild. And from half a score of mountain men. At this point, however, I have no idea what of this is true, especially since he told me you were of little consequence. He flicked eyes up at the dragon's horned head and grimaced with a combination of disgust and resignation. Most of it may be true, unfortunately, despite what he may have said about me. What exactly were you supposed to do in Hopetown? Attack the town square, run the people out, steal what we wanted, find and kill the marshal. And where was Calron supposed to be? Sarnath's face moved soundlessly for a few moments, his eyes wandering. That was never really made clear. I just assumed he'd be going after the marshal. He's got a grudge to feed. More than one, you can be sure. Gawan jerked his head toward the camp where Ablui, Clough, Gibberon, and Durwan were guarding the other robbers who tended each other's wounds. I've no more to say to you, Sarnath. You're lucky I don't trust you up and drag you to Garnet myself. Head south, north, west, just not east toward Hopetown. Daring to meet the Enchanter's piercing gaze one last time, Sarnath nodded respectfully, raised eyes to take in the sight of the bronze dragon's head hovering over him, stepped backward as he almost lost balance, then left his sword where it lay and trudged around the serpent's bent tail, heading back to camp and his men. I hope my calling did not disturb anything important. The horned head turned, and his tongue darted out from between long incisors to clean his claws. Worry you should not. 
Master Darby Ag was finishing a lesson on riding thunderbolts. I heard the calling and was surrounded by fire. The enchanter noted the length of Blitheron's claws rivaled that of a broadsword's. Uh, I dislike interrupting you with your master. Worry you should not. Derbriag understands and allows for our relationship, abrupt and intermittent as it may be. Wondering if this meant Derbriag approved or simply tolerated the calling he had woven between himself and Blitheron, Gawain quickly shrugged it off. Others approach. The dragon retracted its claws and lowered scaled jaw to view the approaching visitors. Their eyes round. Durwan and Gibberon stepped warily toward the Enchanter and Blitheron. By the gods! Is this creature real? I thought it was Phantom Spell still working. Smiling at Durwan's amazement, Gawan gestured him close. Come here. Having stopped to admire the tremendous serpent and the broken trees around it, the men came reluctantly closer, their tread as light as if they walked on thin ice. Staring apprehensively at Blitheron's head as if expecting it to lunge forth and snap him in two, Durwan found enough courage to step up before Gawan, unsheathe his sword and presented hilt first in obeisance, then knelt. My humble regrets for misjudging, being untrusting of you, Gawan, Master of Dragons. Cringing at the title so bestowed upon him, Gawan took Durwan's sword, following the proper etiquette of acknowledging the warrior's honor by holding it flat against his own chest. Stand, my friend. He held out his hand, Durwan gripping it pensively as he rose to his feet. Do not ever lower yourself to me again, Durwan, nor apologize for being honest with your feelings. But you are master of this creature. No, I am not master of this or any other being except myself I hope for the god's eyes Durwan keep me in perspective I'm a man just as yourself nothing more this dragon is a friend not a servant regarding him for a long moment with an assessing look Durwan considered what had been said and finally shook his head with mock disgust. <sighs> I was right the first time. You enchanters are a strange lot. Then slapped Gawain on the back. <laughs> As you say, my friend, does it talk? In his own way. Meanwhile, the rest of their group had tentatively come close and were admiring the bronze dragon's large, sinuous form as it lay among the trees. My friends... Gawan motioned for them to come closer. I wish you to meet my friend Blitheron, brother of the Bronze Flame. The dragon's head rose higher in order that he could see all of them at once, his mane fanning out fully. May your incarnations be fruitful and your translations be with light. Chania came forward hesitantly, feeling very small, and upon seeing the golden eyes center felt stripped of her mental shields and emotional screens, the dragon's intelligence probing, seeking, observing all there was about her. Greetings, Blitheron. I am Chania, Princess of Grimont. Soon, the rest of them stood before the serpent, each formally introducing themselves. Each one felt as Chania had, hesitant, naked, unprotected, except Oblivion. When he came forward, it seemed the dragon presented itself to the priest. Afterward, the formalities evaporated away to more immediate concerns. What to do about Calron and Hopetown? Standing within a close radius to Blitheron, they discussed options while keeping an eye on the departing robbers who seemed to be in a hurry to leave, wounds or no. The primary concern was getting word to the marshal and to Trimble of the attack plan still remaining, but there was no way to get back to Hopetown with a reasonable margin of time for the townsfolk to prepare their defenses. Blitheron has offered his services. Eh? How's that? He can fly us to Hopetown. We'll be there by dawn. 
There was a stunned silence as each member of the group looked over the dragon's form and envisioned traveling in such a manner, a journey of which legends were made. What? What of our horses? A half-score of steeds is a fair lot to cast out to the wild. I will render them invisible. Each horse will be able to see the others, but no man or other creature will see them. Maledan will take them back to Hopetown. How would we ride him? As you would a horse, on his back. Again, silence befell them as each tried to find any other possible complications in the abrupt plan of flying to Hopetown. Twould seem there are no more objections. Shall we get underway? Chania clapped her hands. Yes! The longer we wait, the later we get there. Take only your weapons and a blanket. We don't want to be too heavy for him. A blanket? I've been told it will be windy and cold up there. Huh. He noted with some amusement how several of the group seemed apprehensive about the flight. As for himself, he tingled with excitement at the prospect of being liberated from the ground, having always dreamed of being able to fly. The Magian Alliance histories told of a few wizards and enchanters that practiced such a power, but there were none of recent that did so. The group hastily gathered weapons and fetched blankets while Gawan went with Flaina and Clough to take care of their horses still hidden deep in the forest. Gawan, I require a clear area from which to take to the air. These trees are too close. The road is just over there. Will it be sufficient? If not, I shall make room. The serpent turned his head in the direction Gawan pointed and moved with surprising agility and grace, his massive, sinuous body slipping between the trees and leaving only footprints to mark his passing. As Clough and Flaina untethered the group's ten horses, Gawan spoke softly to Maledon. The elf horse twitched ears this way and that. Be careful, my friend. I hate leaving you like this, but I've no choice. He held Maledon's head close and stroked his neck tenderly. I love you. Don't take too long to come home. He stepped back and spread arms wide. The horses shivered from invisibility. He silently his companions and listened to the horses trot off after Maledon's encouraging sounds. There was a plaintive mew at Clough's feet, and he bent over to pick up Glink. That's it. No horses, no other way but Blitheron. No turning back. Indeed. For us or Calron, I'm scared. Gawan regarded the half-elf sympathetically. I know, love. But we have the upper hand. And, with Blitheron's help, a head start. But we can't prepare for him if we don't know exactly what he's after. He pulled her close. Calron seeks that most valuable of all creations on this world. What's that? Us. Well, he won't get us without a fight. With Flaina in the crook of his arm, Gawan turned and headed back to the road. We'd better get moving if we are to provide that fight successfully. As one, they stopped and admired the bronze dragon's majestic form stretched out to full length. Trees leaned away from where Blitheron had shoved them back to allow room to lift himself off the ground. Shadows moved awkwardly along his spine, the others finding places to sit on his long, knobby, finned back as two witch lights burning amber and pink, Brins and Chania's, bobbed back and forth above him like fireflies. Leaving Clough to help Flaina climb up Blitheron's scaly haunches, Gawan walked around to face the dragon's glowing eyes, deep lamps of golden light focusing intelligently upon him. Blessings upon thee for this service, my friend. But may I ask why you do this? Consider it a chance for reprisal against the mountain men. A what? Mountain men? Many of our young dragonlings have suffered the pranks of the mountain men for uncounted riads. They play a game where they toss boulders between themselves, coaxing a dragonling to join them. 
Our young are very trusting and innocent, but not too bright in their first 20 riads. The moment the dragonling joins in the toss, he gets hammered with stones. The enchanter winced at the imagined agony of such a cruel trick. When not killing them, which would be merciful at the very least, it leaves them crippled and malformed. Does this mean you wish to help in the defense of Hopetown? The golden orbs gleamed with amusement. I think not. I have learned most humans fear dragons, no matter our disposition. My presence would no doubt be disruptive to your efforts. <laughs> Gawan nodded with a rueful quirk of his lips. No doubt. Be assured, your flying us there is a great service. Your time is short. The serpent lifted its head to study the stars. Their conversation apparently at an end, the enchanter went around to Blitheron's side and, seeing a place had been reserved for him up front just behind the dragon's head, climbed up gingerly, afraid of causing discomfort where he grabbed. Aside from a momentary quiver of his flank, Blitheron seemed unbothered. After a few moments of figuring out where to straddle the wide, scaly neck without hindering the fanning mane that tended to rise and fall, Gawan settled in front of Lena. As she wrapped him with her blanket, he turned to inspect the others. Clough and Chania were wrapped together. His elfin second winked enjoyment at his friend. Followed by Durwan and Gibberon, Lazar and Bryn, and Thasgar and Pabui. Discovering he was the odd one out, Gon had found himself a place behind and above the rest of the group and in front of one of Blitheron's dorsal fins on the humped portion of his spine. The dwarf appeared enviously comfortable as he leaned back on the tall fin, hands behind his head. From what Gawan could see, Gon's spot gave him a masterful view of the entire company as well as clear sight of what lay ahead of Blitheron. What ho! Gone, my fellow? Uh. Seeing as you've assumed the crow's nest, you may give the command for flight. <laughs> It'd be high time for a promotion. With a wave, Gawan turned and faced forward. Flana wrapped arms snugly about his waist, taking a moment to pinch his side <laughs> playfully. Blenron! Oh, show us your speed! In their places on his spine, everyone felt the serpent's body tense. Giant muscles flexed, limbs unfolded, lungs sucked in huge amounts of air. The inner power and strength of the bronze dragon awoke. He unfurled enormous wings from where they had lain dormant along his side, the moonlight revealing a translucent, faintly colorful, reticulated membrane stretched across seemingly insubstantial forelimbs. Slowly they moved up and down, beating the air with the grace of a flutterby, forcing wind underneath and behind. At the same time, he rose on his legs and moved forward, gaining momentum. Small squeaks of surprise erupted from different members of the company when they felt the disconcerting drop of their stomachs. Hands grabbed instinctively for scales, fins, and each other seeking balance. Leaves and dust billowed behind the serpent as he began a gradual ascent. Deftly, he contorted his sinuous body to avoid clipping tree branches reaching across the road, inadvertently buffeting his passengers. Oh! Oh! After a few epithets concerning the unexpected jostling, the group fell silent with wonder and watched the panorama appearing below. High-reaching trees fell away, the forest shrinking into a dark, nondescript mass on the ground below. The road dropped away, becoming a faint ribbon unwinding and disappearing amidst the shadows of night. A distant river, sparkling with starlight, wound its tireless path through the darkened wilderness. Blitheron climbed steadily into the night, piercing a low cloud. Fog and moisture rushed past everyone's ears, the wind getting colder as they soared higher. Breaking the upper billows of the cloud, the serpent leveled off, sensing the thinner air, knowing his passengers could not tolerate less. Yet, 
Despite the chill breeze, the company was enthralled with the sights, the shifting shapes of the vapor below, creating a bland, rolling landscape that was as inviting as a happy dream. While overhead, the stars burned as bright as blue and white diamonds on depthless black velvet. Isn't it beautiful? Chania cooed in Cluff's ear, feeling giddy from the experience. I want to hop off and walk on it. Gaywan told me once of a powerful wizard that did what he called cloud skipping, using magic to run from cloud to cloud in the sky. Whatever for? To cover great distances in very little time. But... She turned within their mutual blanket and frowned with perplexity at him. How do they get on a cloud to start with? He shrugged. Ask him, I suppose. Or hop off and see if it'll hold you. I'd just as soon let you go first. Scowling playfully at him, she turned forward again, her hands encouragingly stroking his around her waist, pulling him close for more warmth. Ahead of them, Gaewon pointed at a break in the clouds through which could be seen a chain of mountains marching silently towards the horizon under the ghostly moonlight. Soon, the combination of thin air, gently undulating spine, and cold breeze sent everyone into a slumber as the bronze dragon's wings beat and cut the wind with an hypnotic rush that pounded insistent, yet soft as a heartbeat, a sound that lulled the waking senses. Falling into a dreamless sleep, Gawan mused at how Blitheron's wings sounded like the Cresden windmills whirling swiftly before the onslaught of a summer storm. Aradell Hotelling, Jay Gilbert, Lauren Angelic, Stephanie Ann Wood, Richard Hammer, and H. The Great and Powerful. The Sextology of Novels are available through Amazon.com on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at the lowest price plus shipping. That includes additional bonuses from the author. Merely submit a request to our email. The wonderful music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by the ensembles of Evan McDonald, Florian Sorong of Tiny Music, Sarah Chapman, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Labor Labor Creative Commons. Sound effects and original foley provided by freesound.org. Mix kit of Victoria, Australia, sounddogs.com, Cusp Studios, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.